Uh, you can, um, before you ask, you can take an extra week if you need it. Um, so you get an automatic gimme of a week. So, well, it's due the third, but you can you can take to you can take until the tenth without um, needing to ask for an extension. So is that good? Okay. So um, basically, the papers are like last time, except about um, other people. <laughs> you should be you should be writing about other people. It's sad, but you know, sometimes you just have to see what's out there. Yeah. Are we allowed to go uh, back or back from like after we wrote the paper? Do you have to write about the people after that time? Or? You have to get them in. Okay. Um, no, I guess you don't. I mean, that'll be that's for the exam. Um, so you'll be doing lots of reading, and 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 inevitably the exam is going to have essays. Um, it'll also have some uh, short answers or probably some identify the quotation type things. Um, it's a little bit hard to think about how to do short answers that you wouldn't want to um, murder someone after seeing them in a course like this. Um, well, I don't know. Who is Jeffrey? Okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's about the only one. Um, so um, I don't know. Who's, who's uh, Sir Plume? Which guy? The incoherent one. Okay, good. Ah, maybe it'll be a lot of hard short answers then. Good job, guys. <laughs> oh, Tal's shaking his head, so it definitely will be. <laughs> okay, um, it probably, there may be a very few short answers, um, but it's, uh, there will be identify the quotation type things where you should be able to identify the quotation even if you don't remember it. Um, explicitly, you should be able to identify it um, by um, the sorts, by your sense of the various poets that we've done. Um, so if you saw a quotation in tetrameter, for example, um, rather than pentameter, who's the first person you would think of? All right. All right, yes. So you all said Swift, as though with the single unanimous roar of Swift, the halls resound. Swift goes the cry and echoes to the sound. Swift is repeated, and swift the halls resound. That's not All right, it's terrible. Sorry, but it's not terrible off the cuff, is it? Um, and then essays. And the essays will give you some constraints as to what you write about. That is, it's not going to be um, who's your favorite poet, why. <laughs> um, and who is your second favorite poet? Why is this person not your favorite poet? Those won't be the essay questions. I mean, if you're smart, you should be able to turn any essay question into that. But those won't be the official content of the essay questions. Um, so what are you thinking, Matt, of writing on? Remind me your first paper? I wrote about the race of the rock. Yeah, okay, yeah. So don't write about the same poet that you've written for your first paper. Um, but besides that, you can, you can do whatever you want. Um, okay, let's uh, look at Burns and Blake. Um, did you find Burns hard? 
Um, I've never had to look at the footnotes so many times for a poem written in English. Everyone find it hard? Uh-huh. Really? Yeah. <laughs> huh. <laughs> huh. I don't know. I just don't know what to think of that. Um, <laughs> that's good. What did you like? <laughs> okay, good. Um, and he certainly, um, people still love him. Um, and he's still sung and quoted all Lang Syne um, every New Year's Eve, right? Um, it wasn't hidden, though, was it? Sorry? It wasn't hidden, though, right? Old Lang Syne. Yes. I just thought, like, old Lang Syne just came up a lot. And I thought, I thought it was like a Scottish folk song. Really? It's a Scottish poem written by him. Um, the phrase is not his invention, but is this yours? Did you leave your phone? Yeah? Can we listen to what, it's, what these guys were saying before I came in? Uh, it's still recording. But now I just deleted it. Oh, you deleted it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you guys just all stick together, don't you? All right, um, or the best laid plans of mice and men. Um, did you think that was proverbial, or did you know that was from Burns? Did everyone? Okay, well, why don't, look, I actually want to spend more time on Blake um, than Burns, but take a look at, um, I think a good one is, is if you have the, this is in the um, Lonsdale. Um, the poet's welcome to his ill-begotten daughter, um, which is a true story. Uh, he scandalized people. Um, you probably know something of his background from the, um, from the Oxford, but he was essentially the self-taught son of a self-taught father, and there were uh, manual laborers and farmers. Um, Wordsworth refers to him. Um, as the, as uh, the poet, the former poet um, before his plow. Um, and what Burns did was he wrote both in perfect high-class English, especially when he was writing political poems, and in not really a Scots dialect, but the kind of um, dialect that, um, it, it's really Scottish um, rather than Scots is what he wrote in. So it's um, it's, re it's legible to English readers. They're 20th century Scottish poets, most famously Hugh McDiarmid, but if you've, um, not a poet, but if you've, um, they're also novelists who do this, who write in a much harder for an English reader to decode, that's a German phrase, a much harder for the English reader to decode writing um, in, in contemporary, in 20th and 21st century um, Scottish literature. There's a, there's a, um, 
a large and, and uh, recurrent movement towards Scottish nationalism. The most famous 20th century um, poet in the Scots dialect is um, a guy named Hugh McDiarmid, um, who's really, really good, um, but much, much harder to read than Burns. Um, Burns is writing for an audience that will um, appreciate the, um, the quasi-Scots um, uh, sound of his language, but it's much more um, English speaker friendly um, than most Scottish poetry is. So what he's partly doing is he's um, uh, presenting and dramatizing a speaker who is Scottish um, and who does speak in dialect, but his speaker actually isn't speaking in dialect. It's more, it's a little bit like um, when the Russians in a contemporary um, thriller speak with English accents, whereas the um, good guys speak, you know, Mission Impossible does that all the time. Um, the bad guys have British accents and the good guys have American accents and the British accents are supposed to be foreign. Um, so this is to, supposed to be a little bit foreign, but it, but he knows that his he knows his audience. He knows that he's writing for an audience. He knows there's an audience that's going to respond to this, which means that you have to keep track of the difference between the speaker and the poet. Um, this is not um, in any sense primitive poetry, where primitive here doesn't mean anything in, remotely bad. It just means poetry that is in the same language that the speaker would use um, in, um, in any other um, uh, linguistic uh, connection to the world. Um, so this isn't doing that, that sort of thing. He's, he's, he's artfully aware um, of an audience, of a readership. Um, and that, again, is one of the reasons, one of the ways that he um, anticipates Wordsworth a little bit, um, and in which he is, um, in a lot of ways, like Blake. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, I hope. Um, which is that the language of his poetry um, is language which is supposed to sound spontaneous. It's, um, it's an imitation of spontaneous language. Gray, this is one of the things that Wordsworth complains about. And I'm not going to make you read the preface to Lyrical Ballads. Um, you've done enough. If you've done what you were supposed to do, you've done enough. Um, but the thing that Wordsworth didn't like about Gray, um, he quotes a lot of Gray in the preface to Lyrical Ballads. And he says, this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad. Um, and the bad part um, is the part that sounds poetic. Um, and the thing about Gray is Gray wanted to sound poetic. That is that when Gray talks about, um, uh, uses that periphrasis for the hoops that the boys at Eaton are using, um, the circle that, that, that um, bounds down the lawn as though he's doing a Homeric description of a chariot wheel. Um, Gray's whole point is to say, look, I can turn this into the language of classical poetry. Um, these, these um, boys on the playing fields of Eton can be described in language that sounds like the, a translation of Homer. Um, I'm repeating a little bit what I said when we were talking about Gray, but if Pope does that as mock epic, that is Pope, part of Pope's mockery is to use epic language about non-epic events like a card game, um, Gray is doing that without being funny. Um, he's doing it to show that, um, that things have 
the dignity of classical poetry, even if they just seem to be clowning around, that anything human can be described um, in a style which is high poetic, which is recherche, which is looking to be high poetic. Um, and in one way, that's something Wordsworth will agree with, that the subjects of poetry should be um, ordinary events of ordinary life. But he will disagree about how to do that. So for Gray, it's, so you take these ordinary events of ordinary life and you make them high poetic. For Wordsworth, it's you bring poetry to the language of ordinary life because that's where poetry is actually most poetic. High poetry is stilted. Real poetry is not high poetic. So the, so the argument between Gray and Wordsworth, or the argument Wordsworth has with Gray, is an argument um, about what poetry really is, not about what things are poetic. Gray and Wordsworth agree about the things that are poetic. What they disagree about is um, how to show that they're poetic. What they disagree with is um, what poetry really is. But Wordsworth, therefore, although he is capable of high poetic modes, um, avoids them, but he's capable of them. Um, and therefore, when he doesn't write in them, that's a choice that he makes. The same is true with Burns. That is, Burns is capable of writing in high poetic English, um, but he chooses and is at his best when he's writing in this somewhat invented but still um, delightful and telling and colorful Scots dialect. So if we look at um, him here speaking in his own voice, um, he's nevertheless speaking to a child. And um, so when you speak to a child, um, you of course have to accommodate your language to that child. So even though he's speaking in his own voice, he's speaking to an audience that will want him. He's, it's in his own voice that he's speaking in a voice that isn't quite his own, but one that is child-friendly, um, even though what it says is, um, not exactly what you would expect to say to a child. So um, this is 704 of Lonsdale. A poet's welcome to his love, begot love begotten daughter. What does that mean, love begotten? Yes, love child, as we hippies say. Um, a poet's welcome to his love begotten daughter. The first instance that entitled him to the venerable appellation of father. Um, that is the first, um, the first child he had, the first time he was entitled to think of himself, to be called a father. And then notice the difference between this oratun title, um, this high and formal title, and the poem itself, which I won't try to do in any kind of Scottish accent. Anyone an actor? Anyone want to try it in a Scottish accent? No? Thou's welcome, I can't stop with something. <laughs> Thou's welcome, ween, Miss Chanter, Fami. <laughs> um, if thoughts of thee or yet thy mammy shall ever daunt in me or awe me, my bonny lady. So let mischance um, follow me, just to translate a little bit. Let mischance be my portion. Let mischance follow me. If I am ever um, unhappy, daunted, or awed in a bad way, um, made to feel awful, made to feel that I've done the wrong thing, um, if any thought of you or of your mother 
um, should ever do that to me. Um, curse, let me be cursed if that should ever happen. Or if I blush when thou shalt call, call, me, call me Tita or Daddy, Tita being um, presumably a Scottish uh, um, uh, family term for father, nickname for father, um, like Tata in Russian. Um, though now they call me fornicator um, for obvious reasons and tease my name in kintra clatter. They may or they talk. I'm kenned the better and let them clash. Um, so even if they think that I'm just a fornicator and they, they um, say bad things about me, um, what they're doing, they're marring their talk. Um, I mean, sorry, the more they talk, um, it's all the better for me. Um, and let them clash, let them say whatever they want. And old wives' tongues, a feckless matter to guy and fash. Um, that is, uh, that is to, um, to give any trouble. So an old wife's tongue is, is um, ineffective and distrustful um, to give any, any trouble. Did they say anything for fash? Um, welcome, my bonny sweet wee doctor, that is daughter, though ye can hear a wee unsocht for, presumably. Um, and though you're coming, I hey fucked for both Kirk and choir. So um, I had to fight um, against, or I was attacked by both church and choir because of your coming, and you were a little bit unsought for. Still, I welcome you. Yet by my faith, you're no unrocked for that I shall swear. Um, so uh, you're not someone, I think unrocked there will mean um, not someone that I won't work to, um, to bring up, to, to um, turn into um, a lady. We image of my bonnie Betty, so you look just like your mother. We image of my bonnie Betty, as fatherly I kiss and dot thee, um, as dear and near my heart I set thee, with as good will as all the priests had seen me get thee, that's out of what? Hell. Um, so you're the, you're, um, I, as, I, as in a fatherly way, I kiss and um, fondle, the footnote says, um, you, um, and I put you near and dear to my heart with as good a will um, as the priests saw, as though the priests had seen me beget you um, out of hell. Um, so their bad will um, towards me, I have as, as good a will towards you as their bad will is towards me. Sweet fruit of many a merry dint. So, lots of fun. Sweet fruit of many a merry dint. My funny toil is not a tint. That is, there's no, it's not tinted in any way. Though ye came to the world asclent, askance, we would say, which fools may scoff at, in my last plaque, your parts be in it the better half of it. So even though you came in um, askance, um, something saucily um, into the world, as King Lear's um, Gloucester has it, still plaque means coin. Um, if I were down to my last coin, you'd have more than half of it, the better half of it. Though I should be the war bestead, thou be as bra and binely clad, and thy young years as nicely bred with education as any brat a wedlock's bed in all thy station. 
So um, even if things were really terrible for me, um, I'd work as hard um, to, to um, clad you, to dress you, um, to um, clothe you, to educate you as any child born in wedlock um, of your class and all your station. Lord grant that thou may I inherit thy mother's looks and graceful merit. I think that's the line that I really wanted you to notice, that he's, um, as he blesses her, he's saying, may you inherit your mother's graceful merit. So he's not only saying the child shouldn't be punished for being a bastard, and he's not only saying that for him it's worth it, whatever um, anger and hatred the town and the church and the gossips have for him, um, look who he has. He's not going to be made to feel bad about this. It's not only that, but um, he's saying that her, um, her mother's great. He's talking about the graceful merit of her mother as well. So um, he's essentially saying none of what the town says in any way. Um, there's nothing um, important or morally serious about what they say. Um, he may be poor and a poor and worthless daddy, um, but the but her mother is um, is um, has graceful merit. So may you inherit your mother's looks and graceful merit and thy poor worthless daddy's spirit without his failings. So he accepts that he has failings. Um, he also says he's spirited and he hopes she will inherit that spiritedness. Twould please me mere to see the erit than stocked malins. So I'd rather see you um, inherit all of this than to have um, um, to own more land. Um, for if thou be what I would a thee, what I would have you, and take the castle I shall give thee, that I shall give you, I'll never rue my trouble with thee. I'll never be sorry um, for all the trouble that you brought um, by being born out of wedlock. The cost nor shame ut, but be a loving father to thee and brag the name ut. So I'll never um, complain about the cost or shame of, that you brought upon me, but I'll brag that I'm your father, is what he says to her. Um, and, um, and he is. Here's the poem. He's done it. Um, it's not only that he tells her this, but he writes a poem which is exactly that kind of brag. Um, and that's a, that's, uh, he was lustily hated by, um, by his, his uh, village, by, his, by the townspeople, by the people um, where he lived. Um, they thought that he was just the most immoral person around. Um, but he was fine with that. Let's also look at um, the To a Mouse, which is, uh, I guess, the next poem in, the, um, in Lonsdale. Um, just because it's uh, a really good poem about, uh, again, the way you get a sense of the speaker, not of Burns himself, but in another way of Burns himself, but the way you get a sense of the speaker um, by looking at, at who he speaks to and who he wants to speak to. So it's not, um, in this case, the speaker is not Burns himself, but is um, 
a farmer who has turned up a mouse, um, uh, turned up a mouse nest while plowing the field. Um, and Burns is inventing a farmer who feels bad about this. Um, but the fact that he addresses the mouse tells us a lot about the farmer, about what a good guy he is, that he feels this way about the poor mouse, which is not the way most people would feel. And then the fact that Burns is interested in writing a poem about a guy who's a good guy because of um, his sympathy for the mouse whose nest he's just turned up, um, that tells you something about Burns. Um, but it's Burns is thinking about a speaker who's thinking about a mouse. Um, and all those um, things are the kind of sympathy with a different kind of person that in Romanticism in general will take the form, or at least picking up from what we were talking about in Barbo, um, will take the form of sympathy for the experience, an adult sympathy for the experience of a child. Um, and it's, it's the intense um, remembering and, um, and also understanding of the experience of a child, of not forgetting what that was like and acknowledging that there are others who are having that experience now. That's what you get in um, Romanticism. So the very famous, we sleek it, cowering, timorous beastie. Um, did people know that line before? Famous first line? So little, sleek, cowering, frightened, um, tiny beast. Um, oh, what a panic's in thy breasty. How does he know? The panic in her breast? You ever seen a mouse in trouble? Oh. No, you haven't? No, I, I did. <laughs> and so what do you see? Yeah, you can you can see the heart pounding in the in the in the chest. Um, so it's a really amazing picture. If you've ever if you ever have seen a mouse in trouble, it's an amazing picture of you know they they, they freeze, and you can see their panic, um, and it's not because they're running around and scurrying and trying to escape. Um, it's just pure panic. What to do? And so he sees that in this mouse. Um, Thou need not star away, say hasty, with bickering brattle. Um, but don't worry. Now the mouse is starting to run away. But you don't have to worry. Um, I'm not after you. I would be lathe to rin and chase thee with murdering paddle. So I'm not going to come after you and try to kill you um, with, with my, with my um, paddle, my spade. Um, um, you know, I feel sympathetic towards you. That's not necessarily how you would expect a farmer to respond to a mouse. Um, that is that um, he's plowing now, which means that, that um, the grain is going to grow. Um, it's not at harvest time. But one of the problems with harvest is, is you get all your, um, you, you bale all your grain, your wheat, your um, grasses together or whatever, and the vermin come and start eating it. Um, and vermin are a real problem for farmers. But um, I told you last time, I think it was about John Clare's, or, or, or a week and a half ago, about John Clare's poem to a mouse. Um, and he finds the mouse, um, in that poem, he finds the mouse um, in a haystack, which means that the mouse is actually, um, is eating the hay um, that, that the farmers have gathered. Um, and he's sympathetic to the mouse also. 
Um, but it's not, it's not obvious that, that a farmer would be. Um, but he says, don't worry, I'm not going to come after you. I'm truly sorry man's dominion has broken nature's social union. Um, so notice now that we're in a little bit of a higher rhetoric here, um, almost political. Um, this is the kind of thing that you can imagine in a town meeting hall, in a village meeting hall, a kind of leftist radical thing to say, go back to nature. Remember that Goldsmith was complaining about the enclosures, about what's happening to the natural world under the rise of the Industrial Revolution, under the rise of capitalism as humanity um, becomes more and more in control of the land around it. So here, you wouldn't even know that this was supposed to be in, in dialect. I'm truly sorry man's dominion has broken nature's social union and justifies that ill opinion which makes thee startle at me, thy poor earth-born companion and fellow mortal. So what's the only thing that makes that second stanza dialect? The two apostrophes. It's just the tiniest gesture towards dialect there. Um, most people don't notice that the poem goes out of dialect because the first stanza, it's like there's so much dialect in the first stanza that um, your, mind is still, it, your mind is still full of it um, and you're not noticing that um, the second stanza um, doesn't have it because it's still in your mind. Um, so yeah, but the second stanza, the, mo the political stanza, um, is in except for those two gestures of, um, of apostrophe um, in perfectly standard English. But then we get back to dialect. I doubt not, wiles, but thou may thieve. What then, poor beastie, thou moan lived. Did I tell you what moan means? No, what do you think moan means? Must. Must, good. Um, I doubt not, wiles, that is, be time, sometimes, thou may thieve. Sure, you may do it. But what, but what then, poor beastie, thou moan live? A daemonicker in a thraves a small request. So, um... Um, two stooks. Um, yes, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, as as uh, Byron will say about Coleridge, there's Coleridge explaining metaphysics to the nation. I wish he would explain his explanation. Um, so um, I think it's stooks are like are the equivalent in wheat. Corn here means wheat, um, and stooks are the equivalent in wheat of hay bales, I think, but I'm not sure. Um, are you dubious? Or, no, okay. No. Um, um, a daemonicker in a thraves a small request, so if you just take a couple of ears of, um, a, a, a couple of um, ears of wheat, that would be the top part of the wheat, the, the part that turns into flour. It's not very much. I'll get a blessing with the lathe, um, with what's left. Um, that's enough for me. I'll get a blessing with the lathe and never miss it. Um, I wouldn't even notice what you'd eaten. By wee bit housey to in ruin. Um, so there it's very house under, under the ground or um, in the stubble has been ruined. Thy wee bit housey to in ruin. It's silly whilst the winds are strewing. Um, it's silly that that should happen. Um, while the winds are, are blowing everything. Um, 
and nothing now to big a new one of foggage green. Um, nothing to, I think, to build a new house with now, um, with the green that's left over. And bleak December's winds ensuing bath small and keen. I think I never really noticed before that he can't be plowing. Um, the title says to a mouse on turning up her up in her nest with a plow. November 1785. So why is he plowing in November? Um, yeah, but you would, he would already have harvested, right? I mean, I, no, I agree that you plow after you harvest. Um, but where's this corn that the mouse is, or the, the wheat, which he calls corn that the mouse is going into? Yeah, but he's found the mouse. He's turned it up on the ground. Yeah, it's kind of odd. Um, I'd never thought to wonder this before. Um, No, he knows what he's 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 he, he knows what he's doing enough to be a bad farmer. Uh, <laughs> tell. Yeah, but he does say on turning her up. That is a, what a plow does is it turns up the ground. Um, so I'm sure there are learned accounts of this poem. Um, I just don't understand it. You thought this was easy? Uh, is it just like kind of an argument with mice in general? Like what you're saying, farmers would normally kill them because they would eat, eat the grain. So normally, yeah. it's just the reaction that you have toward mice, whether or not they're actually eating practically or not. Yeah, but he says, OK, so there's nothing to build a new one uh, out of, out of um, foggage, which they tell you means coarse grass, green. So there's nothing for him left for him to build a new one. So, so the field has been harvested, let's say. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's, but the mouse is there, and he's not against the mouse. So it's not that the mouse is actually eating anything um, at the time. So it's not that he's found a mouse um, at a point when it's actually being destructive. Um, but if um, he would leave the mouse there, if he could, in its house to winter, and then the next spring when the wheat comes in, the mouse could eat that wheat, um, and it would only be an ear or two, so it would be okay, and he wouldn't mind. Maybe that's what it means, um, that, that uh, the mouse has gotten, has, has um, built its little house, but now in the wheat, that's just been harvested. The mouse has been there and doing fine because of all that wheat. But now he's plowing up the land after that has happened. Um, and now the mouse is displaced. And he's saying, I wish I hadn't displaced you, even though you might eat some wheat again next spring. Does that, um, or next year when the new wheat comes in? Does that make sense to people? Um, all right. Uh, thou saw. The fields laid bare and waste and wast and weary winter coming fast and cozy here beneath the blast thou thought to dwell till crash the cruel coulter passed out through thy cell. So the coulter is what you plow the land with um, and you thought everything was going to be fine. Yeah, for the winter. You thought you could winter here and then presumably it would start eating wheat again next spring. 
but crash the cruel coulter passed out through thy cell. That wee bit heap of leaves and stibble has cost thee money, money a weary nibble. So you built your house. Many. Yeah. Yes. So um, it costs you many a weary nibble. You built your house um, out of these things that you gathered, leaves and grass that you had to nibble, um, leaves and stubble. So the stubble would presumably be what's left from the wheat. That is, the, um, the field is, is um, harvested, the wheat is all cut down, and what's left behind is stubble. Um, and so you built your nest out of stubble. And maybe you plowed it, I think maybe you plowed to get rid of the stubble after the harvest. Um, that is, the wheat grows, you harvest it, there's a stubble field left, and before winter comes, before the ground gets hard, I think is how it works, is you, um, is you plow, get rid of all the stubble, um, then let the ground lie under, under the snow or the mud or whatever till um, next spring and then you're ready to, to plant. I always assumed you plowed just before planting, but maybe you do both, or maybe it's better to get rid of the stubble in the fall. Um, or maybe the, maybe it's changed how they do things. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if the stubble were, were uprooted um, in the fall. Um, so the mouse has um, gotten all this stubble and these leaves um, by gnawing at them and making a nest. Um, and the mouse is as exhausted as the man is. So you can see how he can see. Um, he can sympathize with the mouse because the mouse works just as hard at what she does as the man, as he does as a farmer. Now thou's turned out for I they trouble, but house or howled to thole the winter sleety dribble and Cranach cold. Um, so um, no, you have nothing. Um, no house, no hold, um, as in household, um, to get through the winter's um, frosty cold. Cranach, Cranach. But Mousy, thou art no Thylane. Um, it's not you alone. That's what Thylane would be. It's not you yourself alone. But Mousy, thou art no Thylane, improving foresight may be vain. Um, you alone don't prove that. The best laid schemes of mice and men gang oft aglay. So what I see in you is true also of me. And lead us naught but grief and pain for promised joy. Um, so that's obvious enough. Sad but obvious. Still, thou art blessed compared with me. The present only toucheth thee. But ugh, I backward cast my e on prospects drear, and forward, though I cannot see, I guess and fear. Um, so I think that's an amazing turn at the end of the poem, um, which is that. It's a fable, or seems like a fable, up until the very last stanza. Um, that is that um, Aesop telling a story about a mouse would be about how the mouse thought that it was fine for the entire winter until the plow came and um, left it defenseless and helpless. Uh, moral, the best laid plans of mice, or the best laid schemes of mice and men, 
um, often go astray. And that's almost always given to you as a proverb or a moral. Um, and so the mouse, the man recognizes in the mouse an image of his own life. But then there's that, that unexpected turn at the end, which is actually our life is much worse than the mouse's because the mouse only has to deal with present trouble. Um, the mouse isn't thinking about all the bad things that happened to it, about the loves that he's lost or she's lost, about um, the sadness that she's endured in the past, about her disappointments and um, misery and unhappiness. And the mouse is also not thinking um, about what exactly will happen in the future. Um, the mouse isn't saying, oh no, when winter comes, I'm going to freeze to death. I see no way out of it. I'm in real, real serious trouble. Um, none of that um, is in the mouse's mind. So the mouse's experience, sometimes philosophers, I'm not sure that I agree with this distinction, but philosophers um, of mind um, tend to um, come up with a spectrum of um, perception of perceptive powers, of, um, of kinds of experience that animals have. Um, and on this spectrum, oh, you're looking. You're, you do this, right? D didn't you tell me you were majoring in neurobiology? No. No. It was someone else. OK. Um, is anyone? Well, good. So I can say this without fear of contradiction. Um, that um, the spectrum is from sentience. That is, that an animal is aware of um, um, experiences, pain, cold, heat, motion, and so on. Um, frogs apparently have bare sentience. Um, you know that what frogs do um, is they're essentially in suspended animation almost all the time. Um, but um, they have a very low-level perceptual capacity that responds to kinds of motion. And if there's motion, they'll suddenly burst into reflexive action and grab the fly, and then go back to suspended animation. So when a frog is sitting around not doing anything, it's almost indistinguishable from being dead. Um, nothing is going on in its little froggy brain, um, except that there's this very low-level um, movement detector um, that will then awaken the frog's tiny brain for less than half a second if certain kinds of motion occur. Um, and the frog will either hop or stick its tongue out and grab a fly and then return to suspended animation. So a frog is barely sentient. Um, and um, and uh, it does respond to stimuli, but absolutely in the present. Um, then consciousness, which is a huge step up from sentience, and that's what the mouse would have. That is, there's a world around it that it's aware of all the time. Um, but the world around it that it's aware of all the time, it's aware of in the present. Um, there's no, it is thought, although how could you ever prove this, but it is thought, <coughs> you can argue for it, you just can't prove it. It's thought that mice and Burns, or Burns' speaker thinks that mice don't spend a lot of time feeling regret about um, things they've done in the past, and they don't spend a lot of time um, thinking about what they'll do in the future. They deal with the world as it's um, happening moment to moment. Um, 
probably we think we have memories of being like this when we were very young. That is that we think babies also, um, to the extent that we can remember infancy, we remember it as a time that was always occurring in, in the present, um, not a time with a past or a future. Doesn't mean you don't learn things. Mice do learn how to negotiate mazes. Um, but they don't think back to the time when they didn't really know how to do this maze and then the happy time when they finally got to the cheese. And then, yes, they took a right that time and that was such a good time, that cheese. Those were good days. Maybe if they take a right this time, they'll get the cheese too. That probably doesn't happen in the mousy mind. Um, and that's what um, Burns' speaker is thinking. And then self-consciousness is what humans have um, not just consciousness, but self-consciousness, is what humans and a very few higher primates have, fewer than we thought now that Mark Hauser turns out to have falsified his experiments. Um, but a very few high primates have, and possibly some birds have, is self-consciousness. And self-consciousness essentially would mean that you um, thought of yourself as, as, a, as something that um, had a history and a future. Um, it's you're aware of yourself, but you can only be aware of yourself if you're aware of um, your past and your future. Um, otherwise, if you looked in a mirror, um, you wouldn't say, oh, that's me, because there would be no meaning to the word me unless the me were an object that lasted. So you would have to be aware of yourself as a lasting object, as an object within time. Um, and so what Burns' speaker is saying is, you're lucky you don't think of yourself as an object within time. Um, all you have to deal with is the present. And that can be pretty bad, and of course it can lead to moments of panic and scurrying. Um, but you're not thinking to yourself, oh, all the work I'm now gonna have to do to rebuild my nest, and all that work I did do in building it to begin with. You're dealing with things as they come, um, one moment at a time. So the mouse isn't a fable for the human being. The human being can look at a mouse and think of its past and future and be reminded of his own past and future. Um, and that reminder um, becomes for him a moment of sadness, a moment of difficulty. Um, so it's, again, just, just notice how surprising, it doesn't seem surprising the first few times you read it, but notice how surprising um, the distinction that last stanza makes is. Um, let's go back to Blake, who's um, the pre in, in Lonsdale. Um, and I guess I want to look at um, three songs in it. Um, so um, the first one is, is on page, Lonsdale on page 686. Um, this strange blank verse sonnet um, that Blake was probably it's one of the it's one of the most innovative poems in uh, the history of poetry really um, certainly the history of English poetry certainly um, English poetry in the 18th century um, Blake was I think about 17 no one is quite sure how old he was when he wrote this but he was about 17 um, could have been as young as 14, but no one thinks he was 14 when he wrote it. Um, but it's just barely possible. But the best guess is 16 or 17, um, to the evening star. 
Um, and it's just amazing that he wrote this poem, that he thought of writing it and that he did it. Um, the Evening Star is what? The moon? No. Venus. Venus. Yeah. Okay, so you, you really need to know this for English literature. This is a thing that readers of, well, all literature really should know. Um, the Venus is either the evening star or the morning star. If you see Venus, you will either see Venus in the west just after sunset, or you will see Venus in the east just before sunrise. So Venus is a, is a unless you see the... Um, uh, the transit of Venus, which only occurs twice every 150 years. There's actually a transit is about to occur, I think, in 2012. Um, but the only time you can see Venus as luminous, as a star, rather than as a black spot against the sun, which is the transit of Venus, um, the only time you will see it as a heavenly body, as something luminous and shining, is on the horizon, either just after sunset or just before sunrise. If you see it just after sunset, you'll see it in the west, which means it'll set within an hour of the sun. And if you see it um, in the east, you'll see it about an hour before sunrise. It rises an hour at most before the sun, and then the sun comes up. So Venus can only be seen um, for at a transitional period um, between day and night. Um, it was only discovered, I think, in the 18th century, um, it was only proved in the 18th century that Venus was um, the morning star and the evening star were the, same, were the same heavenly body. It was suspected back in ancient days, but hotly argued, um, because you also only see Venus one or the other. If Venus is the evening star, you won't see it next morning. If Venus is the morning star, you won't see it that evening. Um, so that so you never see it both evening and morning. It depends on time of year um, and where in Venus's year you are, where Venus is with respect to the Earth. Um, so Venus is um, a star that is, if you look for it, it's particularly beautiful. Um, partly because it's it's just a beautiful star, and it's always in a sky that is not itself purely dark, but that's changing color that's a little bit lighter below Venus than it is above Venus. You can see night coming, and there's Venus showing the very end of the day. Evening is lingering, but only a little longer after sunset. Or you can see dawn coming because Venus is a harbinger for dawn. Anyone who looks for Venus um, will start having these associations with it astronomically, um, that it's in, a, in the most beautiful part of the sky, but only for a little while. And so Venus is, is, has always been felt to be about um, the ephemerality of beauty. It's a very obvious um, image for the ephemerality of beauty. Um, Wordsworth, I think we are going to do the Intimations Ode um, on Friday. Uh, Wordsworth um, has a line in the Intimations Ode, um, the soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. And so the idea in Wordsworth is the soul is like Venus. It's the morning star. It rises with us, our life's star. But it set elsewhere, because if you see it in the morning, you don't see it in the evening. So if Venus is the morning star, 
you don't see it in the evening. Venus is also sometimes called Lucifer because it's the light-bearing star. Lucy, light, fur, carrier. It's the light-carrying star. And in Isaiah, Lucifer, when, um, who is associated with Satan, um, in Isaiah, Lucifer simply means the morning star, the son of the morning, is how Isaiah describes it. So in Christian um, uh, theology, that's supposed to be a metaphor for Satan, who, is, who begins as the most beautiful of angels, Lucifer, um, the son of the morning. Venus is the morning star. Venus, of course, is the goddess of love. So in Hebrew um, mythology, in Hebrew lore, um, Venus is the sun of the morning. In Christian, the sun of the morning, in Christian lore, the sun of the morning then becomes Satan, Lucifer, in the um, Rolling Stones, Blood, Sweat, and Tears sense. Pleased to meet you, won't you guess my name? Um, in Greek and Roman and most um, astrological accounts, Venus stands for love. Um, men are from Mars, as you'll recall, but women are from Venus. Um, <laughs> you're rolling your eyes, good. Um, so here's Blake to Venus. Thou fair-haired angel of the evening. That's an amazingly beautiful line. What he's trying to do in this sonnet is give you a sense of the lingering of Venus as the evening star. It's still there. The sun is down, but it's still there. It's lingering a little bit. So thou fair-haired angel of the evening, now, whilst the sun rests on the mountains, so the sun is just going down, light thy bright torch of love. So the sun is going down, resting on the mountains, and now Venus is beginning to appear. Light thy bright torch of love, thy radiant crown put on, and smile upon our evening bed. So it's evening, it's bedtime, but there's the smile of the star. Smile upon our evening bed, smile on our loves, and while thou drawest the blue curtains of the sky, and this is, I believe, the first great poem ever. It's not the first poem ever, but it's the first great poem ever that has done something that we just saw, which is what? What's, what's really surprising about line five? You who are so used now to their heroic couplet. Yeah, there are some there are some um, doggerel poets who've done that before, but no serious poem has ever ended a line on the word the. Um, it's an amazing thing to do. It may not seem amazing to you, but it actually is um, to end on the word the. But it gives you that sense of things being drawn out. Now, smile on our loves, and while thou drawest the blue curtains of the sky, and the the, and then notice how you have to draw back to the beginning of the next line. It's like the curtain being drawn. Um, while thou drawest the blue curtain, curtains of the sky. What does it mean to draw a curtain? To extend or bring to, it across. Wait, say it again? To like bring it across a window. To bring it across a window, okay, that's artfully ambiguous, tell. Yeah. Yeah, to open or close. 
Um, yeah, it's it's a word that can. It's one of those words which are self antonyms. Um, it actually does count as a self antonym, um, like dust, as a verb, which means either to put dust onto something, well, dust it for fingerprints, or to remove the dust. Um, same with drawing a curtain. Um, so is, is Venus drawing the blue of the sky and revealing black, or is it making the sky the all the all the more richly blue? Is it drawing the curtain shut um, so that we now see the blue of the sky, or is it drawing the the curtain of day open so that the blue of the sky is now disappearing? Um, while thou drawest the blue curtains of the sky, scatter thy silver dew on every flower that shuts its sweet eyes in timely sleep. So it's dusk, there's dew, and he's thinking of the dew as coming from Venus herself. Scatter thy kindly dew. Scatter thy silver dew on every flower that shuts its sweet eyes in timely sleep. Let thy west wind sleep on the lake. Just feel the, um, the hypnotic repetition there. Draws that shuts its sweet eyes in timely sleep. Let thy west wind sleep on the lake. And again, on is not unprecedented but unusual to end a line with. Let thy west wind sleep on the lake. Speak silence with thy glimmering eyes. Speak silence with thy glimmering eyes. And wash the dusk with silver. And there's that repetition of silver. Scatter thy silver dew. Wash the dusk with silver. We accept that you can wash the dusk with silver because the silver has already been associated with the dew. Soon, full soon. So there's the ephemerality of it. Soon, full soon, dost thou withdraw. Because Venus is going to set within the next little while. Then the wolf rages wide and the lion glares through the dun forest. The fleeces of our flocks are covered with thy sacred dew. Again, that repetition of dew. The fleeces of our flocks are covered with thy sacred dew. Protect them with thine influence. Um, influence literally means there, it's an astrological word. Um, when you talk about the influence of the stars, influence really means what flows from the stars to us. That's how the stars influence us, is that there's some energy that flows in from the stars to us. Um, and so Venus has been described as liquid throughout this poem, um, washing the dusk with silver. So now the fleeces are covered with the dew of Venus, um, the dew that we've already seen. Scatter thy silver dew on every flower. Now the fleeces of our flocks are covered with thy sacred dew. So silver has become sacred. Um, and that so the liquid light of Venus is um, an image of a kind of protection by love. Um, a wonderful enchantment for going to bed, for um, smiling upon our evening bed. A wonderful image for being safe during the dangers of the night because Venus um, is presiding over the transition, is still there washing the dusk with silver. Um, so 
that by itself, I mean, you could spend forever on that poem. That by itself is an amazing poem. And as I say, it's a sonnet, although it doesn't rhyme. Um, I don't know that it's the, it's intended as a sonnet. I don't know that it's the first blank verse sonnet, um, but it may well be. Um, that is, it doesn't happen to be 14 lines. It's intentionally 14 lines. Um, let's look at uh, one song of innocence and one song of experience. Um, so go, this is page 691, and this is the poem called The Chimney Sweeper. Um, Blake published, some of you will know, um, published a book. He actually printed it. Um, he was a printer as well as a, um, and an artist and illustrator um, as well as a poet. Um, he's a pretty major artist in uh, the Western tradition. He's the greatest um, artist who's also a major poet in, um, in England. Um, but as a poet, he is um, really one of the very greatest of English poets. And the tradition of English poetry is uh, one of the greatest traditions of uh, modern poetry, of post-medieval um, post poetry. Um, so Blake is in the running, as it were, for being one of the great poets of all time. Um, as a painter and illustrator, he's really good, but he's not, you wouldn't talk about Blake in the same breath that you would talk about, as a painter, that you would talk about Michelangelo or Raphael or, um, or Giorgione. Um, it's perfectly fine to talk about Blake in the same um, context that you would talk about Milton or Dante or Homer. Um, so it's really, if you study Blake, it's important to give him lots of credit for how, how great an artist he was, but to understand that what he was really great at, great, what his true greatness was, was, was his poetry. However, his poetry would never have been rediscovered except that he had um, artistic followers. Um, the painters were the ones who's, who were interested in him first, um, and it's because of their interest that people um, who didn't know about him as a poet got interested in, in him as a poet. At any rate, he published a book called Songs of Innocence in um, 1789. And um, then five years later, he published a second book called Songs of Innocence and of Experience. Um, so the Songs of Experience never appeared as a separate volume. Um, and the reason to know that is, is that it helps you to understand the Songs of Innocence. If you, if you understand that that title is already telling you that there are two ways of looking at the world, the innocent way and the, what he will call the experienced way, the knowledgeable way, the way when you see how things really are, which is not good when you find out how things really are. It turns out they're not as good as they seemed. Um, but the very title, Songs of Innocence, um, is a title that can only be given by someone who says, this is a special way of being, being innocent. It's not that Blake was an innocent person who thought, oh, life is so innocent and wonderful, I will publish some songs about this. It's rather that you would only write the songs of innocence if you wanted to say, this, is, this perspective is only a partial one. So the title, Songs of Innocence, and then the title of the expanded volume, 
songs of innocence and of experience, as titles, they're almost synonymous. Almost synonymous. Because any song of innocence is also the writer of that song of innocence is writing from the, from the perspective of experience. The way the title isn't synonymous, at least in, insofar as what it denotes goes, is the songs of experience are very different from the songs of innocence. Um, they're bitter and overtly bitter. Um, but it's not that Blake suddenly realized that life was not as nice as he thought it was. Um, it's that he started writing, um, trying his hand at giving that different perspective more overtly. Um, but a lot of the poems are paired. So how many of you know the tiger or remember it from reading? So the tiger is paired with what do you think in the Songs of Innocence? The lamb. Hence did he who made the lamb make thee is the last rhetorical question in the tiger. The lamb is little lamb who made thee. The tiger is, did he who made the lamb make thee? Um, so look at the innocent chimney sweeper, spoken by the chimney speaker. When my mother died, I was very young. Um, first question, what's wrong with that line? Or, why, or another way of putting it is, why, why is that line so telling? What would you want that line to say? I think almost. I think it's rather when I was very young, my mother died. That is that um, I have to tell you something. I was very young and this terrible thing happened to me. My mother died. But when my mother died, I was very young. From the first part, he understands that mothers die. And he's just saying, this thing that, happened to me, this thing that happens to everyone happened to me when I was very young. Um, you know, it's like when, um, uh, I don't know, um, when I took my first airplane ride, I was very young. It's like everyone does it, um, and the only interesting thing is um, when in your life that happens. Um, but for this child to know that that happens, that's already the looming of experience into the regions of innocence. Um, he has an innocent attitude towards it, but when my mother died, I was very young, and my father sold me while yet my tongue could scarcely cry, weep, 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 weep. Um, so again, it's as though, of course, my father is going to tell me, is going to sell me, but because my, I was very young when my mother died, um, he sold me earlier than you would expect a father to sell their child. So he accepts it all. That's how you know he's innocent, is that he accepts this all. And my father sold me, well, yet my tongue could scarcely cry, weep, 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 weep. Why the apostrophes? Yeah, he's calling out offers of his wares. Um, but what are we supposed to see? It's supposed to be sweep, 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 but he lisps, not in numbers like Pope. Um, he lists because he's a child. All he can say is, weep, weep. Do you want your, do you want your chimney weeped? Um, but what are we supposed to say? Yeah, the word weep, of course. And the rhyme um, makes that clear. So your chimneys, I sweep. He can now say it because he's not as young. 
and in soot I sleep. And then he talks about his fellow sweeps. There's little Tom Dacre who cried when his head that curled like a lamb's back was shaved. Um, why was Tom Dacre's head shaved? Yeah, he it would catch all the soot in the chimney, and he'd even get stuck in the chimney, as many sweeps did. Um, so shaving the head is like um, swimmers shaving their heads, um, but for much grimmer reasons. Um, to be able to clamber around the chimneys. Little kids were chimney sweeps because the chimneys were so narrow and so crooked. Um, one of the big reforms at the end of the 18th century was trying to straighten out chimneys um, to make them less destructive to the children who cleaned them. Um, that they're, um, the soot in chimneys is really, really awful, carcinogenic, um, horrible, just, just unimaginably disgusting job that um, these little children were set to do because they were the only people um, of, of the right size to do it. So little Tom Dacre cried when his head that curled like a lamb's back. Why like a lamb's back? Yeah, and it's innocent. Um, was shaved. So I said, he cried, so I said, hush, Tom, never mind it, for when your head's bare, you know that the soot cannot spoil your white hair. So don't worry, now the soot won't spoil your hair. It's a good thing. And so he was quiet. And that very night, as Tom was asleep, he had such a sight that thousands of sweepers, Dick, Joe, Ned, and Jack, were all of them locked up in coffins of black. So he has a dream that the sweepers are locked up in coffins. Um, where does he get the very idea of coffins of black? What's he, what is he actually dreaming of? Chimney. The chimneys themselves. And by came an angel who had a bright key, and he opened the coffins and set them all free. So this is what we would call a wish-fulfilling dream, that um, an angel came and set them all free. Then down a green plain, leaping, laughing, they run and wash in a river and shine in the sun. Then naked and white, all their bags left behind, they rise upon clouds and sport in the wind. And the angel told Tom if he'd be a good boy, he'd have God for his father and never want joy. So that's great, that dream. It's not true, but it's great. And it shows you what, how things should be rather than how things are. But then the real subtlety of this poem is in the next words. And so Tom awoke. And we rose in the dark and got with our bags and our brushes to work. Though the morning was cold, Tom was happy and warm. So if all do their duty, they need not feel harm, fear harm. So what does it turn out that, the, that let's say that the dream was sent by God as a reward to Tom. Let's say that in some, which is in some sense what the speaker thinks, that Tom grew quiet and that he was given this wonderful dream and that made him happy. What do we think about the God who would send him this dream as a reward? What does the dream do? Yeah. Yes, this is this is um, a, this is a religion is the opiate of the people moment. That is that Tom grew quiet and did his duty, and he was rewarded with a dream of happiness. And the dream was so nice 
that he went and swept chimneys the next day. Um, it was cold, but he still did it. And so now go back to the second to last stanza. And the angel told Tom if he'd be a good boy, he'd have God for his father and never want joy. Well, what do we know about fathers in this poem? They sell you. So what's really deep about this poem, Blake is amazingly subtle. And part of his subtlety is that he doesn't seem subtle at all, at least not. Well, he never seems subtle. Um, but he's actually amazingly subtle. And part of the subtlety here is this is an anti-God poem, or at least um, an anti-angel poem. And the angel in the dream that says, you'll have God for your father. Um, Tom and the speaker of this poem think that's a good thing, but that just shows how innocent they are. Because what the poem is saying, what Blake is saying, not what the speaker is saying, but what Blake is saying is to have God, is to have God for your father. We do have God for, God for our fathers. And what does he do? He, he, he sells us before we can cry, weep, 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 weep. We're sold by him into um, this, this horrendous slavery and horrendous, dangerous child labor. Um, and so Tom awoke and we rose in the dark. It's just, the situation is the same. But we've been, um, but, but the world has done a good cop, bad cop routine on us with God as the good cop or with the angel as the good cop. Um, look at the experienced version of the chimney sweeper. Um, this is page 696. Um, and here is essentially, you could say, Blake telling you his view of the earlier poem as a speech. A little black thing among the snow crying, weep, weep in notes of woe. Where are thy father and mother say? They are both gone up to the church to pray. Now, clearly not the same chimney sweeper because his mother's praying rather than dead. Um, but yeah, they sold him and they're being religious. Look at this poor little black thing. And oh, his parents think well of themselves. They're praying. Because I was happy upon the heath and smiled among the winter's snow, they clothed me in the clothes of death and taught me to sing the notes of woe. Now, obviously, the child isn't saying that. This is what Blake thinks the child should be saying. Or this is a first-person recasting of what the third-person description of the child would be. Because he was happy upon the heath and smiled upon among the winter's snow, they clothed him in the clothes of death and taught him to sing the notes of woe. But um, it's so clear that that's the case, that the child all but says it. And because I am happy and dance and sing, they think they have done me no injury. Again, in the third person, this makes perfect sense. And the point is, no, you have done him an injury. The fact that he's happy and dances and sings doesn't mean anything. You've done him an injury. And in order to show you that you've done him an injury, I'm going to put this in the first person in order to show that it matters, that it's not an injury that he doesn't know and therefore no harm, no foul. He is injured. He may not know it, but he is injured. 
And so the only appropriate way to express the fact that he's injured is by putting this in this bitter, ventriloquized first person. And they are gone to praise God and his priest and king who make up a heaven of our misery. So God and priest and king, they get the chimneys of heaven swept, you could say, by these poor sweepers. Um, a very, very um, angry poem, and rightly so. Um, but again, notice that what he's saying is, if he is, he's telling you that the first chimney sweep poem is also an angry poem. And it's angry not at everything. It's not angry at the child, but it's angry at all those who would harm the child. Um, almost all the paired poems, and I'd say they're about a third paired between the Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience, um, are like this. The most interesting pair of poems, um, I was going to bring it in, but as I say, you guys have enough on your plates. Um, but if you look at the two versions of the nurse's song, um, the innocent version and the experienced version of the nurse's song, that's, maybe I'll put it on latte. Um, that's a really amazing pairing to look at. Okay, I will put on latte what the reading for um, our last class on Friday is. Then your last class um, of the semester is next Monday. Um, so would people want to meet next Tuesday to do the makeup class on Pope? How many people are interested in doing that? Um, Okay, so is there, why don't we, um, is there a particular time on Tuesday that works that doesn't work? That would be Tuesday the, what, 7th? Does work or doesn't? Okay, is that generally okay for people? Okay, this is obviously optional, but what I'll try and do is figure out um, an hour and a half that Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday the 7th. All right, um, see you all Friday.